Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and our Lord Jesus Christ, as we continue our worship in the Word this morning. Let's take a couple moments to bow in prayer. Uh, Father, we are grateful to be in this place together, worshiping the name that is above every name, the name of Jesus. Father, as we have worshiped you in song and in giving, we're grateful for that. As we turn to your Word, We pray, Lord, that you would prepare our hearts and minds for it, that you would soften our hearts to the truth therein. And so what we know not teach us, what we have not give us, and who we are not in Christ, we ask that you'd make us and we ask it all in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. You know, I uh, once heard a story about a godly farmer who was invited to a a large city uh, by a well-known gentleman as he sat down for a meal with this uh, gentleman, with this host, uh, uh, he asked the host if he minded if he prayed for the meal and gave a thanksgiving to the Lord for it as he was accustomed to do in his own house on the farm. Well, the host wasn't much of a believer and was kind of rude and he responded and said, you know, uh, more educated people these days, we don't pray before our meals. Well, the farmer, he was pretty gracious in his response, and he responded and said, uh, well, for me, I ask simply because it's a custom of mine, but I can understand, after all, there are some on my farm who don't pray either. The man responded and uh, was a bit intrigued and said, well, uh, they seem uh, pretty sensible and enlightened. Do you mind telling me who they are? And after a short pause, the farmer smiled and said, the pigs. You know, as uh, we have an opportunity to enter a week of Thanksgiving, we're reminded that our example we are to avoid are those farmer's pigs. We are invited in light of Thanksgiving to take time to tell God thank you. We're reminded that Thanksgiving, the significance of it, is not just in what we are thankful for, but the one to whom we are thankful to. And as we take time to continue in our series of the letter of Galatians, we're continuing to be reminded that the kind of God that we give thanks to is a God who offers salvation by grace through faith as a free gift, apart from human effort and all based on the finished work of Christ on the cross. This morning, I'd like to invite you to the letter of Galatians chapter 3. We're going to be in the first nine verses together. As you make your way there in your Bibles, we're going to consider how Paul, at this point in the letter, calls these believers back to the truth of the gospel. And he's going to do that by asking them to consider five rhetorical questions that we are also going to consider together about how they relate to us in our day and age. Now, as you make your way there in your Bibles, the reason why Paul is needing to call these believers back to the truth if you've been with us in the first two chapters, is because false teachers have come into the churches throughout the region of Galatia. They are professing believers, and they, they have taught that faith in Jesus is important, but that faith in Jesus is not enough. In order to be saved as a Gentile, not only did you need to trust in Jesus, but you also needed to be circumcised. You also needed to walk in obedience to the Mosaic law. And many within the churches of Galatia have been deceived. Many have been led astray into this false gospel, which is no gospel at all, as Paul had declared earlier. And in chapter 3, Paul transitions to speak directly to his readers and call them back to the truth by asking them to consider these five questions that we're going to read 
together. And so would you stand in honor of the reading of the word, Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1 and following. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit? Are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. The word of the Lord, you all may be seated in the presence of God this morning. As we dig into our text together, we get to consider how Paul calls these believers back to the truth of the one true gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul is going to do that in these first five verses by introducing us to five rhetorical questions. And the reason he asks these questions is to bring us to an answer that he's going to give us concerning what gospel they first believed. What gospel provided them the Holy Spirit who indwells them? What gospel ultimately sanctifies them? And what, by what gospel was uh, the miracles done in order to confirm that gospel? Paul begins by asking this question. He's quite straightforward and bold. He says, oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Paul begins by calling them foolish Galatians in order to highlight how easily they deceived they have become, how easily they find themselves to be gullible. They've received the truth of the gospel concerning Christ and him crucified. It was clearly portrayed to them, and Paul calls them foolish for being led astray. He calls them foolish for, for thinking that you could add anything to the finished work of Christ on the cross as a means of salvation. He says, oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Uh, Paul's motivation, I want to remind you, is threefold. Number one, his motivation is love. Paul, as he writes to these churches in Galatia, many of these churches are those that he had planted himself during his missionary journeys, during his first one. And, and Paul, having shared the faith with them and preached Christ and him crucified to them, he watched as the Holy Spirit brought these truths to their hearts and minds and they, they turned to Jesus and they accepted Christ as their Savior and their Lord. And since his departure from there, false teachers have come in and as a spiritual father in the faith, he is concerned for them and out of great concern and love for them, he says, oh foolish Galatians who has bewitched you. The heart of Paul is that of a parent of a prodigal child who has strayed from the truth and Paul sees these children in the faith and he says, he says oh foolish Galatians who has bewitched you. 
The, the heart of Paul is the heart of God for his children who stray from the truth. We're reminded in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 to 12, speaking of God's heart for the lost. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects just as a father, the son in whom he delights. Paul is motivated by love when he says this, O foolish Galatians who has bewitched you. Secondly, Paul is also motivated by the urgency of the need to call them back to the truth. Paul, when he says, oh, foolish Galatians, he gets their attention, doesn't he? He gets ours, certainly. If Paul were to say, oh, oh foolish uh, Springfield uh, residents, wouldn't that get our attention? Paul, Paul calls them that to arrest their attention, to, to help them see the seriousness of, of how they have departed from the one true gospel and have sought to add to the finished work of Christ on the cross. And his motivation is, is the urgency of needing them to come back to the truth. But thirdly, he's also motivated by the truth. The reason he calls them foolish is because they are. How foolish is it to, to get to know the true gospel of Jesus Christ that you can't do anything to earn your salvation, to recognize your inadequacy and your inability, and then after you come to faith, think that you can add anything to it afterwards. And Paul says it's foolish to add anything to the finished work of Christ on the cross. He says, I want you to see how foolish it is to think that you can contribute anything to your own salvation. Paul says it's downright foolishness. We sing a song, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stone, uh, a crimson stain. He, he wiped it white as snow. Uh, if, in fact, Christ did not pay it all, uh, one Author says the song would sound like this, Jesus paid a lot. <laughs> a lot is left to pay. Since the bill is infinite, I'll work till judgment day. No, Jesus paid it all and all to him we owe. Consider the foolishness of thinking that we could add anything to the finished work of Christ on the cross. And so Paul begins to remind us of the foolishness of thinking any other way. You know, we live in a world and a culture who says you believe in a God who sent his son Jesus to die on a cross and three days later rose in newness of life and they will look at you and laugh that that is foolishness when the scriptures point out no true foolishness is departing from the truth of the gospel. True foolishness is hearing the good news of the gospel of Christ who provides forgiveness of sins and everlasting life and responding to it in unbelief. Those who have been enlightened to the truth are not fools. Those are those who have been enlightened to the wisdom of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if we've received the truth of the gospel, of the light of the, of the glory of Christ, how much more should we hold on to it and not stray from it? In the same way that we have received the Spirit, may we continue to be sanctified in the Spirit as we're going to see in our text this morning. And so Paul begins and, and says, Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? The reason he says who has bewitched you is because it's hard for Paul to understand how they could have seen the gospel so clearly. They're acting as if they're under a spell. 
Now, we know that Paul knows that it's not a spell. We know that it's the influence of these false teachers. And who is the influence behind the false teachers who lead these people astray? Let's read John 8, 44. It says this. You are of your father the devil and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. Who is behind these false teachers who have led these Galatian believers away from the truth of the one true gospel? Behind these false teachers is the influence of Satan himself. He is a liar from the beginning. And what better way to lie than to say that the finished work of Christ on the cross is not enough? thinking that we can add anything to the finished work of Christ. And so Paul says, oh, foolish Galatians, who who has, how, how have you been bewitched? Who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? And then he reminds them of the truth that they originally received. He says, before whose eyes Jesus was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. Paul says, I want to invite you to consider, oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Remember the gospel that changed your life forever. Remember the gospel that provided forgiveness of your sins. Remember the gospel that gave you the assurance that all sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven. And look back at the cross of Christ. Before you, he was clearly portrayed. How was he clearly portrayed? Through the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. You know, when Paul originally preached the gospel to them or whoever preached the gospel to them, they did so in such a clear and vivid way that they painted Christ and him crucified on the canvas of their minds and their hearts in such a way that they could see it vividly and come to faith in Christ and him crucified. This morning, we're reminded that just as these believers were invited to look to the cross, you and I are invited to look to the cross as well. And the manner in which we look to the cross is by being reminded of two things. Number one, when you take a look at the cross of Christ, you and I are reminded of our inability. We are reminded of our desperate deficiency. We're reminded that because the reason Christ had to go to a cross in order to die for our sins is because we could contribute nothing and as a means of our salvation. The reason why Christ had to die on the cross is because of our inability to contribute anything to our own salvation. Paul says this back in chapter 2, verse 21, if you remember, if I do not set aside the grace of God... I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, Christ has died in vain. And Paul is ultimately saying, when you take a look at the cross, you see your desperate inability. If you think you can add anything to the finished work of Christ on the cross, why did he have to die in the first place? There are some people who argue there are many paths to heaven. Jesus is one of those paths. Well, if Jesus is one of those paths, why did he have to come and die, suffer and die for our sins? Ultimately, his death on the cross becomes unneeded. It becomes unnecessary. It becomes ineffective. The reason Christ had to die 
is because that was the only way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. When we stand back and behold Christ and him crucified, which is the key to the content of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're reminded of our inability and our desperate deficiency, but we're also reminded of Christ's sufficiency to pay for our debt in full, to cover all sins, past, present, and future, so that we can have the assurance that not only do we have forgiveness of sins, but the promise of everlasting life in Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. And so Paul says, you foolish Galatians, go back to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ that was so clearly portrayed to you of Christ and him crucified. Be reminded of your desperate inability and his sufficiency to provide salvation and the forgiveness of sins, past, present, and future. And as you stand back and are reminded of the true gospel of Jesus Christ, it brings you to a place of gratitude and thanksgiving. If ever you should find yourself trying to add to the finished work of Christ on the cross or or try to contribute anything to your own salvation, you realize in a moment like this how foolish is that. How could anyone possibly bewitch somebody? Are you under a spell that you should stray from the truth of the gospel and the gospel of freedom that sets you free from these these things? And so Paul begins with this first question for them to consider, oh, oh, um, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Look again to the cross of Christ. In light of this question that we are invited to consider for us as believers, how are we invited to Respond Well, I'd like to give a few ways, but in light of the fact that it is the week of Thanksgiving, the first way that we are to respond to this question we're invited to consider is by thanking God for the reminder to be discerning. Take time to thank God in light of this question we're invited to consider, to thank God for the reminder to be discerning. Oh, that we would not have the kind of pride to think that we are beyond these Galatian believers who have fallen into deception. If ever you or I should take our eyes off of the cross of Christ, if ever we should find ourselves losing focus and being distracted from Christ and him crucified, how easily can we find ourselves deceived? Uh, Let us not have the kind of pride to think not only are we beyond these Galatians, but beyond, if you remember in the last chapter, Peter, who gave in to the false teachers and stopped eating with the Galatian believers in Antioch, contradicting the faith that he declared and that he had believed, we are reminded to thank God, to thank God for the reminder of how easily we can be deceived. So keep your eyes fixed on Christ. Secondly, thank God for the ability to be discerning. Not just the reminder to be discerning, but the ability to be discerning. Aren't you grateful that the way that you tell the difference, not just between right and wrong, but right and almost right, is knowing the truth? 
When you get to know what the truth of the gospel is, that Jesus died, that Jesus rose, and that Jesus is coming back again, that Jesus offers salvation as a free gift to anyone who would receive it by grace through faith have you been saved apart from human works. Then can we finally say, okay, if anything departs from that truth, we can point it out immediately. God gives us the ability to tell the difference between right and almost right as we are no as we get to know the truth and fix our eyes on Christ secondly by the power of the holy spirit who indwells us in James chapter 1 verse 5 it says if any of you lacks wisdom let him ask God who gives to all liberally and without reproach and it will be given to him if you need discernment and you need to be able to tell the difference between not just right and wrong, but right and almost right. If someone should have a conversation with you in your family and say, that sounds a little bit off. Take a moment to pray about it. Go back to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and go back to the truths therein. And then thirdly, thank God for the ability to be discerning, not just by looking at the truth, relying on the power of the Holy Spirit, but recalling your individual testimony. Paul preached the gospel in such a way that he made it vivid before them and completely clear. He, he portrayed the gospel vividly and clearly, and that's how we should seek to share the gospel with others. Paint the gospel of Jesus Christ who was crucified on our behalf in such a way that we can show it clearly at, through the work of the Holy Spirit as he uses us to speak, but also opens their hearts and minds to the truth of the gospel. And, and can you think back to the moment when the gospel was clearly and vividly portrayed to you to the point that it was drawn on the canvas of your heart and on your mind as someone shared it with you and you trusted in Jesus as your Savior and your Lord. Paul wants to remind them of that. And I can think back to the moment it was for me. I remember I was six or seven years old. My brother shared a vivid picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ, clarified the truth for me that I was in need of a savior, that if I continued on the path that I was on apart from Christ, I was gonna spend an eternity without God and his people forever in a place called hell. My brother who was six years older. He was very straightforward with me. And I remember in vacation Bible school, our Sunday school teacher who was also leading the time of teaching with us took time to clearly and vividly portray the gospel of Jesus Christ, of Christ and him crucified who demonstrated to me, and I still remember as a six or seven-year-old, of my desperate inability to do anything to earn my salvation. But I was also reminded of the sufficiency of Christ who paid for all my sins, past, present, and future. And even as a six or seven-year-old, the gospel was clearly and vividly portrayed to me. What was that like for you? Paul says, be reminded of that moment and stay true to the one true gospel of Jesus Christ. Not only that, but share that with others as well. And so um, first, thank God for the reminder to be discerning, the ability to be discerning, and thirdly, the fruit of being discerning. When you are discerning, not only do you get to enjoy salvation and the assurance of your salvation, but you have the opportunity to share the good news of Jesus Christ with others as well. This week, we're entering into a week of Thanksgiving. You're going to be sitting around the table with family, possibly friends, loved ones, 
those that you like, those that you don't like so much. Nevertheless, you're together as a family and friends, and you'll have an opportunity to have conversations about spiritual things. Take time as you enter this week to ask God to give you wisdom for what that looks like to engage in those conversations. Ask God to provide wisdom for what that looks like to share your faith or to turn the conversation toward spiritual things so that he will enlighten them to the truth of who Jesus is. And if you have an opportunity, I pray that you would share the gospel in such a way that it would clearly and vividly portray Christ and him crucified. And that is a great privilege you and I have as believers. So the first question Paul invites the believers to consider is, oh foolish Galatians who has bewitched you, look back to the cross of Christ and him crucified. The second question Paul asks the believers to consider is by what gospel did you receive the Holy Spirit? By what gospel did you receive the Holy Spirit? Did you receive the Holy Spirit as a result of works of the law and obedience to the law? Or did you receive the Holy Spirit by hearing of faith, by hearing the gospel and responding in faith? Paul puts it this way in verse two. This only I want to learn from you. Paul says, I really need to understand this one thing. He really is pushing them. He's really getting in their face about this. He says, this is only one thing I want to learn from. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Paul began with their initial reception of the good news of the gospel, and he now talks about the spirit. And you know, one of the greatest evidences that you belong to Jesus is the Holy Spirit who resides in you. Romans chapter 8 verse 9 says, But you are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. In other words, if you do not have the Holy Spirit, you do not have Christ. But when it comes to our faith in Jesus as our Savior and Lord, the moment we are justified is the moment that the Holy Spirit indwells us. There's not a two-part process where you are justified, declared to be in a right standing with God, and then later receive the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells you. No, the moment of justification, the moment you trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, is the moment that the Holy Spirit takes up residence in your heart. And Paul is asking them this question, when did that happen for you? By which gospel did you receive the Holy Spirit? Was it by the works of the law? Was it that, okay, you put your faith in Jesus and then these false teachers came in and said, well, faith in Jesus is important, but it's not enough. You need to be circumcised. And so as a Gentile, you went and got circumcised at that moment. Is that the moment that the Holy Spirit indwelt you? At what moment do you receive the Holy Spirit if you're working your way into the favor of God? What do you have to do in order to to get to a certain point of spiritual maturity that the Holy Spirit finally indwells you? Is it on the basis of the works of the law? (laughs) Absolutely not. The, The moment you receive the Holy Spirit is the moment you respond in faith to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul is arguing here by this question. By what gospel did you receive the Holy Spirit? Spirit, the good news that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from human effort. 
And so we're reminded that the manner in which we receive the Holy Spirit is by the gospel of faith. Um, if, if I could apply that to us in light of Thanksgiving, our response to that question that we get to consider is thank God for the work of his Holy Spirit in salvation. Thank God for the work of the Holy Spirit in our salvation in light of our justification. Let me read to you a, a couple texts that remind us of the work of the Holy Spirit. John 16, 7 through 11 says this, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, of judgment. The Holy Spirit's the one who convicts us. The Holy Spirit's the one who draws us to himself, to the Father, of sin because they do not believe of me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and see you no more, of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. The Holy Spirit is our helper. Even in the process of being justified, the Holy Spirit is the one who enlightens us to the truth. We would have no desire to put our faith in him apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Romans 8, 15 to 17 says this, for you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Thank God for that assurance that we are children of God through the Spirit. Verse 16 of Romans 8, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Thank God for the Holy Spirit work in our hearts at the moment of salvation. The Holy Spirit is our helper who draws us to Christ and allows us to put our faith in him. And the Holy Spirit is the one who gives us the assurance that we are sons and daughters of the living God, adopted sons and daughters of his. If there's someone who has a reason to give thanks to God, it's us as believers who have not just received salvation, forgiveness of sins, and the promise of everlasting life, but the gift of the Holy Spirit who indwells us and will continue to indwell us permanently. Uh, Paul then asks a third question for us to consider. He says, but by which gospel will you be sanctified? So we know by which gospel did you receive the Spirit, but by which gospel will you be sanctified? The moment you trust in Christ as your Savior and Lord, you're justified. That means declared to be in a right standing before a holy God. You were a guilty sinner, but because of your faith in Jesus, you're justified. You're in a right standing. But that doesn't mean that you're perfect. How many of you know that after we are justified, we still struggle with the old sin nature? And so there's this ongoing struggle with sin. And so we're in the process of being sanctified. And so Paul is going to ask the question, and I believe this is where we can find ourselves tripping up sometimes. Because we think that we began in the Spirit, but just because we began in the Spirit, we think that we're going to be perfected unto spiritual maturity in the flesh. After all, I think about all that Christ has done for me on the cross. He died for me. He paid my debt in full. And so now, all that I can do in order to serve him and love him is be holy for him. But where, I'm, where I find myself tripping up is when I try to do it in my own strength, in my own power. And so Paul is going to argue here in light of this question, if you began in the Spirit, why do you try to find yourself pursuing spiritual maturity and 
perfection, which is spiritual maturity through the flesh. Let me read it to you. Verse 3, it says, are you so foolish? Paul says once again, it's foolish to think this way. Having begun in the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? You know what Paul is saying here? He's saying, if you received salvation and were justified by grace through faith, how do you think you're going to be sanctified by grace through faith as well? As you relied on the power of the Holy Spirit to draw you to himself and enlightened you to the truth of the gospel, should you not continue to rely on the Holy Spirit to change and transform your life into the image and the likeness of Jesus Christ? If you were saved by grace through faith, being justified, will you not also be sanctified by grace through faith in Christ Jesus? And one day you will be glorified by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. If you began in the spirit, how foolish it is to think that you can reach spiritual maturity in your own strength and in your own power. And so sometimes, folks, you chat with them or maybe even yourself, you struggle with a particular sin issue in your life and you say, I've been trying, I've been trying, and I've been trying. Well, if you were saved by grace through faith, stop trying and start trusting, start relying on the power of the Holy Spirit. What does that look like in our lives? It's very practical. In the same way that you were saved and you fixed your eyes on Christ and him crucified, in the manner in which you are sanctified, continue to fix your eyes on Christ and him crucified. Your first thought in the morning when you wake up should not be, okay, here's a list of do's and don'ts for my day. Even though the scriptures may instruct us in these things, I want to talk to you about how to begin your day. You, you know, you can have all of the lists of do's and don'ts. Do this and don't do that. Well, before you begin with your, your to-do list and, your, and the list of don'ts, take time to reflect on the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Take time to be reminded of your desperate inability, not only to earn your salvation, but to mature you in your faith. You can do nothing in and of yourself apart from Christ. You can do nothing. And so what we are reminded is if we're not abiding in Christ, if we're not staying connected to him through the word, through prayer and trusting in him, then we're gonna start relying on our own flesh and our own desires. And so this morning in light of that, uh, how are we to respond to this question? By thanking God for the work of the Sp Holy Spirit in our lives after conversion. If I could talk to us about relying on the Holy Spirit in three ways, these would be at first, rely on the Holy Spirit by admitting your daily need for him. When you wake up in the morning, may you express how desperately you need Jesus. Instead of saying, okay, here's the do's and don'ts, and I'm gonna work really hard not to do these, and I'm gonna work really hard to do those. Well, why are you doing it in your own power and your own flesh, relying on the Holy Spirit? Romans 7, 18 to 20, Paul describes his struggle. For I know that in me, that in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to, wi for to will is present with me, but how to perform that is good, I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil, I will not to do, that I practice. Now, if I do... What I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin who dwells in me. What can we take away from that? Paul was continuing to struggle 
with his old sin nature, even though that nature has been rendered inoperative and he has a new power master in his life and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 139, 23 to 24 says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there's any wicked way in me. Lead me in the way of the everlasting. When we wake up in the morning, may we, may we not be so prideful to think that we don't need to start our day in prayer. May we not be so prideful as to think that we can go about reaching spiritual maturity on our own and in our own power, in our own flesh, when the reality is we desperately need the power of the Holy Spirit. So begin your day by admitting your inability and your need for the Holy Spirit. Secondly, rely on the Holy Spirit by abiding in Christ. John 15 verse 5 says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit for without me you can do nothing. How do you reach spiritual maturity? By obeying a list of rules and do's and don'ts? No, by simply staying connected to Christ. By prioritizing your time in the word. By prioritizing your time in prayer. By prioritizing your time with the people of God in the fellowship of believers. That's how we stay connected to him. So abide in him. And then thirdly, rely on the Holy Spirit by being reminded of your identity in Christ. If there was a verse to memorize in Galatians, it's chapter 2, verse 20. How, how do you, if you began in the Spirit, reach spiritual maturity by the power of the Spirit, be reminded of your identity in Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If you're struggling with habitual sin in your life and you haven't been able to overcome it, worry, anger, lust, any particular sin, you need to go back to the good news of the gospel. You need to be, go back to the reminder of your desperate inability and Christ's sufficiency, not only to provide you salvation, but in order to provide you the power and the ability to reach spiritual maturity. And when you go back to the cross, that is where you find victory because then you abide in him and he produces in you the fruit of your faith. Because who gets the credit? Do I get the credit? Oh, no. Christ gets the credit. The Holy Spirit's power gets the credit. Christ in me. And so we're reminded in light of this question, thank God for the continued work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and lives in this process of sanctification. Paul continues and asks, basically asks this question in verse four, by what gospel, for what gospel, excuse me, did you suffer? For which gospel did you suffer persecution? Paul says this in verse four. He says, have you suffered so many things in vain if indeed it was in vain? Paul takes a moment and, and reminds these believers of the persecution he's endured and the persecution that they have endured. And he asks them, for which gospel did you suffer? Now, let me read to you about some of, the, some of the suffering they endured in Acts 14, verse 21. It says this, and when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium. Those are two cities in the region of Galatia. 
in Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. Paul, along with fellow believers throughout the region of Galatia, suffered persecution for the cause of Christ. And Paul asked them, for which gospel did you suffer? Did you suffer for the gospel that declares that you have to work your way in order to earn God's favor? Or are you suffering for the one true gospel that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? Paul says that's the gospel, the only gospel worth suffering for. This morning, how should we respond in light of this question? This morning, I'd like to invite us to take the opportunity to thank God for those churches and believers who are persecuted all around the world and throughout church history for their faithfulness and suffering in the name of Jesus Christ, for the cause of Christ, for the one true gospel of Christ. This morning, we're reminded that there are believers all around the world who are not free to practice their faith, to come together as we get to come together. And we can take the opportunity to thank God who, for those who have been faithful in the past and continue to be faithful in the present and will be faithful in the future to suffer for the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And I wanna take a moment to remind us that the gospel is such good news that even though we may not fully understand how anyone could suffer in the face of great persecution, that it's worth it nonetheless if you have to. And the Holy Spirit provides the provision to do just that. Let me bring it uh, um, into context for us this morning. I would say the gospel is such good news that it's worth having an awkward conversation with somebody about. You know, sometimes we don't share our faith simply because of how awkward it may be, a family member, a friend, a coworker, an acquaintance. And just because we want to avoid the awkwardness, we say, well, I don't think I'm gonna have a spiritual conversation about Christ. No, the gospel is so good that it's worth having an awkward conversation about. The, the gospel is such good news that it's worth being rejected or risking the rejection of a coworker, a family member, or a friend, because if they trust in Jesus as their Savior and Lord, you know what the fruit of that is? Everlasting life. And so it's worth it. And then I'd like to suggest that if the gospel is worth an awkward conversation and the, the gospel is worth potential rejection, the gospel is also worth persecution. And while we may not want it or like it, we're often reminded that God furthers his kingdom as he rules and reigns over the hearts of men and over all things through the preaching and teaching of the gospel, often through the means of the persecuted church. And so let us take time to thank God for those who have suffered for the cause of Christ and said it is worth it. Because while they can kill the body, they cannot kill the soul. And so forth, Paul, uh, in verse 5, basically asks, which gospel did God confirm through miracles? Verse 5 says this, therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? And so Paul describes God as the one who provides the Holy Spirit. 
God is the one who does miracles among his people. And the purpose of miracles that you read about all throughout scripture, the purpose is to authenticate the message uh, that is being proclaimed. All throughout scripture you see that. When you read the first five books of the Bible, when you hear about Moses as he's leading the children of Israel out of bondage under Pharaoh, the reason he does these miraculous signs is to confirm and authenticate the word of the Lord that said, let my people go. When Moses is bringing the children of Israel out through the wilderness and miracle signs and wonders are being done, the purpose is to authenticate the message that God is, is with his people and sending them out. You read that in the prophets when you read about Elisha and Elijah and Elisha as miracles are done in order to authenticate the message. And then you come to the New Testament and you see the person and work of Jesus Christ and you get to see that miracle signs and wonders were accompanied with the message that he proclaimed, not just him, but the apostles who preached and proclaimed the same. Acts 2.22 says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. 2 Corinthians 12, 12, truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance in signs and wonders and in mighty deeds. So which gospel did God confirm through miracles? Not the one in which you work your way in order to earn the favor of God or add to the finished work of Christ on the cross. The gospel he confirmed through these miracles is the good news that Jesus offers salvation as a free gift to anyone who will receive him as their Savior and Lord because of what he accomplished on the cross. He paid for our sins in full. All sins past, present, and future have been forgiven. And that's the gospel we have these confirming miracles concerning. And so what we're invited to do is to, to, to take the opportunity this morning to thank God for the power he provides to not just authenticate his message throughout the Gospels, but also take time to thank God for the power he provides to accomplish his will. You know, in Acts 1.8, it says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. You think to yourself, how could a group of 11 disciples minus Judas Later, Matthias is added, turn the world upside down for the cause of Christ. Is it because they were incredibly educated men? Is it because they were um, uh, um, smart men in terms of street smarts or book smarts? No, because they had the power of the Holy Spirit literally working in and through them to take the good news of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And as we get to continue the mission of making disciples, we're reminded that the Holy Spirit that indwelt them and empowered them is the Holy Spirit that indwells us and empowers us. This morning, we get to thank God for, his, for the Holy Spirit who empowers us to accomplish his will for our lives. So those are five questions. Paul doesn't ask another question in verses 6 to nine, but I'd like to add another question as a means to help you see what his argument is. Paul asks, by what gospel was Abraham justified? Abraham was not justified according to the works of the law. Abraham was justified by faith. Let's go ahead and read verses six to nine. 
The text continues and said, and says, just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. Um, Paul is speaking to these believers who have been influenced by those who have taught that faith in Jesus is important, but it's not enough. You also need to come under the Mosaic law. You have to be a Jew and be circumcised. And Paul says, I'm going to go further back than Moses. I'm going to go to Abraham. And Paul asked the question in accordance with Scripture, how was Abraham justified, declared to be in a right standing by faith? The text says, Abraham believed and it was accounted to him. It was imputed to his account, transferred to his account as righteousness. And then it says, this is an interesting note. This is a, um, these are fighting words for these false teachers. Therefore, know that only those who are faith of faith are sons of Abraham. So this is an interesting note, especially for these false teachers and anyone who would think they need to be circumcised in order to be in a right standing with God. He says, only those who are of faith are true sons of Abraham. So you may think that you are a son of Abraham, a Jew, by the basis of your physical descent. Paul says, no, it's on the basis of your faith. This morning, we're reminded Abraham is not just the father of the Jews. Abraham is the father of the Jews and the Gentiles alike. Paul proves it by scripture. In verse 8, he says, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith Preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. In other words, Paul says, if you go all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, you will see <coughs> that, God, that, God, that God provides salvation, not just for the Jew, but the Gentile alike. Let me read that to you. Genesis 12 says this. Now the Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you and in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. How are all the nations blessed? through the seed of Abraham, through the person and work of Jesus Christ. That all who come to faith in Jesus as their Savior and Lord, Jew and Gentile alike, receive salvation and are justified by grace through faith in Christ alone. This morning, if there's anyone who has a reason to be thankful, if there's anyone who has a reason to be reminded of the kind of God that we are to give thanks to, it's you and I. As we take time, as we consider the questions that Paul presented to his readers and look back at when the gospel was clearly and vividly portrayed to us, we have a reason to rejoice and celebrate. When we think about the kind of gospel that provided us the gift of the Holy Spirit, we have a reason to rejoice and to celebrate. When we consider how God began our spiritual journey by the power of the Spirit and is sanctifying us through the, empower, through, the, through the Holy Spirit who continues to empower us, 
we have a reason to celebrate, when we are reminded that when it comes to suffering that we might endure for the cause of Christ and are reminded it's worth it, we can thank God for a gospel that's worth being uncomfortable as we get to share it to the ends of the earth or even suffer on behalf of it because it's so good And we're reminded we have a reason to rejoice because just like Abraham, you and I who are guilty sinners can be made right before a holy God simply by putting our faith in Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross. The most important question you or I have to answer, the most important question that anyone on this earth has to answer is how can I, a guilty sinner, be made right before a holy God? In other words, how can I be justified? And the Bible clearly tells us by placing your faith in Jesus Christ who died and rose again and offers salvation as a free gift to anyone who would receive it. If you're here today and you have not come to a place where you would say, I have the assurance that I'm in a right standing before a holy God, the invitation is to make Jesus Christ your Savior and Lord to admit your need for him as you take a look at the cross and recognize your desperate inability to please God or to contribute anything to your salvation. The invitation is to believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be, the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world to provide you forgiveness of sins and everlasting life by taking your place on the cross and by confessing Jesus as your Savior and your Lord. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, as Romans 10.9 says, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You shall be saved. You have the assurance this morning that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. May we hold these truths near and dear to our heart and share them with as many people as possible. Can we take time to pray? Father, We are grateful for these questions that we've been invited to consider that remind us of the true gospel of Jesus Christ, that remind us that we have been saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. Father, I pray for anyone here today who in a moment like this would say, I want to be made right before God. I pray that they can express this in their hearts genuinely and authentically. Father, I recognize my need for Jesus. I recognize my inability to be made right on my own, to work my way into your favor. But I believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be, the Christ, the Son of God who has come into the world. I believe that Jesus came and died on the cross to take my place in order to forgive my sins and to provide me the path to everlasting life. Today, I make Jesus my Savior who forgives my sins, my Lord, the one I'm going to follow all the days of my life into eternity. Father, as we enter into a week of thanksgiving, we just want to tell you thank you. Thank you for Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord, and thank you for the message that you give us to share with those who don't know him. Father, as we leave this place, we just pray your blessing on us in our final song together. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.